Hey, welcome to another great message from Mr. Christian Outreach Church. We pray you'll be inspired and equipped by this teaching. For more information on Noosa Christian Outreach Church, please check out our website at noosacoc.org.au. Enjoy. Thank you, Gary. I want to uh, share a quick joke with you because in, in the habit I have in preaching, I like to share jokes. There was a senior citizen. She called her husband during his drive home. She said, Herman, I just heard on the news that there's a car going the wrong way on Interstate 90. Please, darling, be careful. And Herman replied, oh, it's not just one car. There's hundreds of them. (laughs) It kind of um, reminds me sometimes of what tourists can be like in, in Noosa. I swear that sometimes when some tourists who visit Noosa, I swear that sometimes they call home and and I reckon this would be the conversation. Hi, how's, how's Noosa? Oh, it's amazing. I love this place. Oh, how's the beach? Oh, it's fantastic. The beaches are wonderful. Well, when you can finally get to them. Oh, what do you mean? Well, they've got these big round things at the intersections. And I've never seen them before. And they've got two lanes. And they just confuse me. Oh, really? What do you do? Well, I just kind of drive straight in and hope for the best, really. And then I get beeped at and waved at and it's all a big game. Sometimes I like to actually slow right, I drive towards it and right at the last minute I slam on my brakes. Just some of you laugh at that because you understand what I'm talking about. Others of you are quiet because you're that person. <laughs> but again, pray for me. I need patience. But uh, perspective's an interesting thing. Two different people in exactly the same scenario can have a completely different perspective, a completely different reaction. All of you have probably experienced that in life. And if there's one topic that I think has had multiple perspectives and still is a debated point and has varying perspectives, and I'm not sure we've actually settled on one, it's this concept of virtue or virtues even. What's this concept of virtue? There's been so many different ways, different philosophers who've argued what is virtue, what is morality, that kind of stuff, and it still goes on. And there's been such uh, dramatic swings in history. If you look at the history of the church, I love being in the church. I love the church. Um, I love Jesus. I love the the organization and the organic um, body of Christ and our ability to touch the earth. But I also, also look back in history, and though God's done magnificent things through the church, there's been some weird things that people have done in the history of church. Would you agree sometimes? For example, at one point in history, such was our pursuit to be virtuous that it was suggested that when you have guests, perhaps cover the legs of your table in case you cause a man to lust. That's a true story. A long time ago. I don't know about you guys. I've never gone to someone's house, shaken their head, and how are you doing? How oh, are the food smells great? Whoa. The legs on that table. Woo! Uh, that, I don't know about you. If you have, no judgment. Um, to, to me, that just does not make sense. And yet... In our pursuit to be virtuous in history, there's been this, you know, perhaps cover up. And unfortunately, sometimes in history has proven that in in our pursuit to want to be virtuous and and please God and do the right things and make sure we don't get judged, um, religious control has has come in and, and it's become about as long as we can get a bunch of people to do what we think is correct, then we're being the holy church. And a lot of time in society today, we've bucked that understanding because, of course, we People weren't made to be controlled by other people, but that's part of our history. And if you look in Scripture, um, Jesus says in, in Matthew 15, verse 1, I'll just read it to you. He addresses this very topic. He said, Then the scribes and the Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, so the religious pros, 
came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So Jesus, your boys, aren't washing their hands before they eat. They're transgression they're transgressing the tradition. And Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. See, basically, in other words, these guys are saying, Jesus, I don't understand. You let your disciples eat without washing their hands. They do this thing. It just doesn't look right on the outside. They're not doing enough to make sure they're obeying the law. And Jesus is saying, hang on, you're getting caught up on making sure everything on the outside is right, that they obey certain rules. And yet you can justify by what you perceive to be virtue. You can justify not honoring your father and mother. You're concerned about whether or not people wash their hands before they eat because that's the tradition, but you have no problem in whether or not you honor people and treat them right. And Jesus draws this thing back about virtue, saying you, can, you might think it's all about getting out here correct so that other people think you're virtuous, but I'd just like to suggest that I'm more about what God's doing in here to transform you, to change the way you look at your attitude towards and the way you treat people. You might be interested in appearing virtuous to people and having a life where people look at you and go, you're amazing, but I'm actually more interested in how you treat people. What goes through your heart towards your family? What goes through your heart towards how you treat leaders? What goes through your heart? What attitude do you have towards strangers? How do you treat people who don't agree with you? I'm more interested in that than I am in you acting a way where people think, oh, you're an amazing Christian. Jesus specifically identified time and time again this obsession with making sure we've got it all together and we appear virtuous. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Virtue is not about what you look like to other people. Virtue is about what you allow me to do in your own heart and the actions will take care of themselves. And yet there was this time in history where virtue was about how do we behave. And then there was this swing to today's society, postmodern society, where it's about, you know, you determine your truth, I'll determine mine. You have your virtues, I'll have mine. Don't tell anyone they can't believe that. Don't tell anyone, no, that's not the right virtue. It's all about relativity and what you feel is correct. And, you know, let's just not have any sort of absolutes. We've swung to this way of going, don't tell me what I need to believe. I'll give you a classic case of postmodern Christian response. I remember being in Bible college, I think it was eight years ago, and I was talking to a friend, and you know, when you're in Bible college, you're passionate about theology and ethics and talking about this stuff, and I had a friend come, and she said, you know, I've got this friend who I want to know what you guys think about an ethical dilemma I have. I have this friend who, they're they're receiving Centrelink um, payments, and and Centrelink has said, if you're working, report that, and that'll that'll adjust your payment. And uh, I have this friend who's earning like five or $600 a week cash, but he's not declaring any of it to to, um, Centrelink. What do you guys think? And me, I went, no-brainer. Be honest. How about that one? Like, it's a no-brainer. Clearly, um, he's in the wrong. He needs to change what he's doing. So what, what, what's, what's his excuse for doing that? He, are you saying he feels... He's like, yeah, yeah, he's, he's doing it and feels like it's fine. I said, well, what was his reason? What's his reasoning? He said, well, he says, you know, the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted me that it's wrong, so I don't think it is wrong. 
the postmodern Christian response. And admittedly, I was tempted to say, maybe the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted you because he's waiting for you to use your brain. I mean, it's common sense, bro. Like, and I, don't, and I didn't say that, obviously, and that was when I was younger than I am now. But, but this, this idea that virtue is this thing that just floats and we just figure it out as we go, and yet it exists today. And yet Proverbs 16, I'm going to read that to you, addresses this idea of virtue. Proverbs 16, verse 5. It says, Everyone proud in heart, and it's harsh, but I'll explain. Bear with me. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, or it's another version says, though they go hand in hand, none will go unpunished. And now I'm not saying this guy's an abomination to the Lord, and I'm not saying God's going to punish him. But what I am saying is, I find the scripture interesting. It says, though they join forces, or though they join hands, it won't hold. And it's interesting to me that in Western society, you can have a hundred, you can have a thousand, you can have 10,000, one million, 10 million people who believe this is, you know, a good virtue to live by. Therefore, we all live that way. And the Bible says you can have 10 million people who say this is a normal way of life. They can join forces. You can be so convinced that it's right. But I'm telling you, that could be completely motivated by pride. It's completely possible to have people in a society function in a way that comes from a motivation of pride and not actually virtue. Though we pursue to do the right thing, though we pursue to live holistic lives, we can live in a society that because we've never questioned, why do I do the things that I do? We live according to a motivation that's actually full of pride and leads us to destruction. For example... And I'm going to exaggerate to make a point, so bear with me as I do. For example, in, in some ways in our society in, in the West, it's ironic to me too that in the West, who, the society that has, it, um, has everything, and we put so much effort into trying to appear like we've got it all together, when in reality, most of us don't. We're still figuring stuff out. Anyway, side note. Often in today's society, you've got young people, youth, who go, you know, I want to, if I'm going to move forward as a person, I think I might go to people who are, my own age and don't know much more than me. I'll ask them for advice in the hope that my life gets better. And I, I mean, I would go to people a bit older than me, but they seem a bit too busy to be bothered. And they're kind of awkward when I try to talk to them, so we'll just stick together as peers. Well, then you might graduate from youth and start getting late 20s, 30s, 40s, and it might become, you know, I'm going to pursue to have this career. I'm going to get my career on track. I'm going to make enough money. I'm going to support my family. And I love my family and I want to be with my family, but I kind of don't have time because I'm distracted by how stressful my work is. But, you know, I've got to keep doing it because I've got to get the house and I've got to get the cars and I've got to make sure my debt's gone by this age so that I can leave inheritance for my kids. And, and, you know, I would like to talk to my teenagers more, but I kind of don't understand them. And I certainly don't have time to be able to build that relationship. So they've kind of got to come to the party. And if they don't, well, that's just how life is. I can't do everything. And then Sometimes we might move into 60s, late 50s, 60s, 70s, have experienced life. And sometimes, I'm not saying this is you, but sometimes I'm sure this exists. We can look back and go, oh, man, I wish amongst all that work I'd spend a bit more time with my kids. I mean, I've got a relationship with them now, but I wish I knew them a bit more then. I wish I could relate to young people a bit more. I'd love to speak into some lives, but you know, I kind of feel irrelevant because society is going in a way where we glorify youth and think that it's be obsessed with staying as young as possible for as long as possible. And I kind of feel irrelevant now. And again, I'm exaggerating, but sometimes this can exist in our society where we think that just a single program is going to solve the segregation between age groups, whereas in reality, is it possible we've lived lives according to values or virtues that were birthed out of pride? 
have we stopped to question perhaps the way I live my life is not actually on virtues that I hold. Virtue is this interesting thing. So there's this struggle between, well, I don't want to go into what we used to have where I just live religiously about a bunch of rules being told, you know, I need to do this and don't look at kitchen tables because you'll last. And if you like, I don't want to do that. But I also don't want to swing to, well, everything's just fluid and I pick my own and there is no absolutes. And we're stuck and it's like, so, so, so what do we do? And, and to add to it, there is still this desire to want to be godly people. If you've got the seed of Christ in your heart, if you've been redeemed, there is this innate desire to go, God, I want to grow in virtue. I want to become more of who you've created me to be. For me, when it comes to being a dad, I want my son, if you came to him when he's six and you said, who's your hero? I want him to say, daddy's my hero. But I also want when he's 15, if someone says, who's your first hero? I'd want him to say, my dad's my first hero. I want when he turns 25, someone to come to him and say, who is your first hero? I want him to say at 25 years old, my dad was my hero. And if they were to ask him, why? Why was your dad your hero? I want my son to be able to say at 25, 30, 35 years old, I want him to say things like, because whenever I stuffed up, my dad was the first one to forgive me. Whenever I got it wrong, my dad never shamed me. Whenever I needed help, my dad was always there. My dad was not just around, he was with me. He was never too busy for me. I want my son in future to say these things about me. But you know, I could spend six hours a day on my knees praying to God that he would give Elijah that perspective of me. But if I never add any virtue to my life, it doesn't matter how much faith I put in God, doesn't matter how much I pray to God that Elijah will see me that way, if I don't add virtue to my faith, I'll never become the man I want him to see me as. I have to add virtue to my faith. I have to have the struggle of what does it mean to add virtue to my faith? What does it mean to grow in the moral excellence of God's character in my life? It's not about trying to prove anything to anyone. It's about I have this faith, but I want it to transform all of my life. How do I do that? It's why in 2 Peter 1, it says this. We've been going over the scripture a few times this year. I'm going to touch on it again. 2 Peter 1 verse 5, it says, But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. I know we've had a legalistic background in virtue. I know we've got a postmodern current place in history of not really knowing what virtue is. And yet, the scripture still says, add virtue to your faith. So the question lies then, how? How does it work? And I'd like to, I'd like to think of it this way. If, if you have a farmer, and Gary brought some great thoughts in, in our senior leaders' meetings about um, having a perspective of how a farmer works. And I'm going to look at um, this point through that. If you look at a farmer who's planting a new crop and puts seed in the ground, everything he does from there on in is motivated by wanting to see that seed come to maturity and that seed to become established, that seed to sprout out of the ground and produce a crop. I worked on an orchard for a year. Everything the owner of that orchard did was to make sure the trees that were planted flourished. And if you look at our faith in Christ, we have a seed planted in our hearts. And this scripture is saying, add to your faith virtue. And in Greek thinking, we can go, okay, I've got faith. And we go linear. We've got, got faith got to add virtue, got to add knowledge, got to add this, 
and this, and that equals this. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't see it that way. But perhaps another way of looking at it is going, I've got this seed of faith in Christ, an environment that enables that faith to express itself more through me is an environment where I add to my life some virtue. I've got faith in Christ, but what do I need to do with my life? What do I need to change to add some virtue to the seed of faith so that that seed can come to maturity in me? Add virtue to your faith. Virtue is part of our pursuit. It's not a a thing that's aloof out there. It's part of our pursuit of God to go, how, Jesus, how can you increase in me so that when people look at me, even if I struggle, even if I have things going on, they can see that that seed you planted in me is deep down in my heart and I'm wanting it to express itself through me all the time. How do I add virtue to my life? How can you change me and transform me so my attitude towards other people is the right attitude? How can you change me so that I treat people differently? How can you change me so that I treat myself differently? Instead of our tendency to be extraordinarily hard on ourselves. The line that, you know, I'm my harshest critic is not something to boast in. Because God's not his harshest critic. And he says, be like me. And says, love is patient. And love is kind. David, if you look at his life, we we remember the stories where he killed the bear and he killed the lion. And it's cool to look at that and go, you know, he had this faith in God and this strength in God. Because of his faith in God, God delivered him. And I believe that. But if you think about where he was, David didn't just have a faith that God was real. He didn't just have a faith that God would protect him. He knew he was given a responsibility from his earthly father to make sure the flock was looked after. David didn't just have a faith. He had a character of virtue. So I have responsibility. I have things I need to do. I need to act according to the responsibility given to me, so that when the bear came, when the lion came, he, yes, he acted in faith, but he also acted according to his virtue. These are my father's sheep, and I am responsible for them. Therefore, lion, if you're going to take these sheep, I'm going to kill you. Bear, if you're going to take these sheep, I'm going to kill you. Not just because I have faith, but because I have virtue. I value what's been put in my lap. Then when it came to Goliath, it wasn't just a faith where he went, oh, yeah, I reckon God can take him. Let's go. It wasn't quite like that. If you look at the story of David, he came to the battle. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the army of the Lord? David had in his character a value for the people of God. He had in his character a value for God's kingdom being established. And when it came to God's people being intimidated, David went, no, that's not how we roll. That doesn't sit right with me in my character. That doesn't sit right with my understanding of God. Therefore, I'm going to take you out. David had a faith, but he also had virtue. David was anointed king by the prophet of God. He had the rightful place to take Saul's place anytime he wanted. 13 years from the time he was promised to the time it was fulfilled. And he had opportunities to take out the one person who was in his way, but he chose not to. Why? Because he had faith, yes, but he also had virtue. Saul was asleep. He went into the cave and he cut the hem of his robe and then legged it. And then when Saul woke up across the other side of the, wherever he was, he said, basically, Saul, I cut something off your coat. I'm really sorry. Saul, the guy who tried to kill me, 
Saul, the guy who hates me, Saul, the guy who I served and I loved and did nothing wrong against, I could have killed you, but I chose not to, and I'm actually sorry that I cut your coat. David had faith, but he also had virtue that affected the way he treated people and honored people. One more. Paul, Saul, as he was first known, had a zeal for God, had a faith in God, had a, somewhat a love for God. And yet, it led him to kill innocent people because they disagreed with what he thought Scripture said, in a nutshell. These Christians who believe in Jesus and proclaim him to be the Savior and that they're redeemed by him, that's not right. Scripture says this, they're heretics. I'm going to kill them. What do you have? Somewhat of a faith in God, but it was divorced from a true faith in Jesus and any form of virtue according to God's moral character and excellence. And yet, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, what happened? Jesus said, first and foremost, I am real and you do need a faith in me. You need to have faith in me. But from that perspective of that faith, you now need to change your attitude and what you believe. You need to change the way you're going to treat people. You need to understand that what you've done to date is not actually right. You need to retrain the way you think and change the way you treat people. I'm going to add some virtue to your life because now you actually have a faith I can work with. Everywhere in the Bible, people of faith, God adds virtue to their faith. And so it's significant for us to go, well, what does it mean for me to add virtue to my faith? How can I add virtue to my faith without faith, without getting caught up in the religiosity that once was and without getting carried away with the postmodernism that currently is? How do I add virtue to my faith? And there are many ways you could probably tell me some, but I'd I'd just like to suggest a couple today and then I'll, I'll wrap up. Number one, one of the best ways we can add virtue is to address the way we think. And uh, as I was thinking about this, perhaps one of the most virtuous questions that we can ask ourselves when it comes to our thinking is this. According to whom? According to whom? I need a drink. Often we think things about ourselves or people or situations in life, but we never stop to actually go, hang on, I've got this perspective, but according to whom? I've got this expectation, but according to whom? And as I was thinking about this, there's one group of people who kept coming to mind who, are, who I'd like to specifically encourage this morning, and that is mums. If you'll give me a few minutes, I want to encourage you. You know, um, there's a lot of, and I thank God for the... the medical advances we have and all the wonderful things there is in parenting and all that. But there seems to be sometimes an underlying, unreasonable, unspoken expectations of what a good mum should be. It's like, oh, you know, if I had trouble conceiving, maybe I did something wrong. Or if I had a hard pregnancy, oh, maybe maybe I didn't do something right. Or maybe, I know labor's hard, but maybe mine was particularly complicated. Oh, what, what does that, maybe, maybe that means potentially something wasn't right with me or, or my child is meant to look like this but they look like this or maybe my parenting's not right or, or maybe this person's child looks like this but mine looks like this or mine doesn't sleep through the night but maybe and, and often there can be this thing where 
things that just happen and kids being different and mums can feel like maybe there's something wrong with me. Can I, I just really want to encourage mums this morning, the fact that you would agree to carry another human being in your stomach, the fact that you would go through the difficulties that already exist with carrying a child, going through labor, raising a child, the fact that you would be so self-sacrificial to see another person prosper, in my eyes, and I think in God's eyes, makes you a flipping legend. And sometimes, sometimes... We need to catch these expectations that come to our head and go, well, if I was a good mum, I should be. You need to ask a big fat, according to whom? Maybe there was something wrong with me. According to whom? And even if there was, that's allowed. And I, know, I, I just really wanted to encourage mums to say, you're doing an extraordinary job. You're extraordinarily courageous. And we honour you for who you are. And I want to free you from the unrealistic, unspoken expectations that no matter how good you get it, there always seems to be this extra expectation that you didn't fulfill. That's not God. And it's not necessary. According to whom? Well, men, maybe. Sometimes, maybe, and again, this may not be you, but sometimes, like, oh, you know, this is what a real man should do. According to whom? Oh, men need to show, I need to show more emotion. That, that's a good thing, but according to whom? Where are you getting your motivation? Or oh, I need to just, oh, I'm not doing enough. I should be doing well with my life, or I should be here by now. And if I was really a man, oh, I'd have this done by now and this done by now. According to whom? Oh, but no, if you knew what I did, um, you wouldn't really accept me. Says who? I know God forgives me, and I know, you know, he's got a future for me, but I'm different. Like, I, I, I've done too much stuff that I can't get past, and I, I don't think God sees me as, you know, he sees that. According to who? When it comes to virtue, one of the most powerful questions is, according to whom? Because if you read the Bible, it says things like, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love suffers long. Love hopes. Love is gentle. Love practices self-control. Love is so many other things. And sometimes, perhaps we need to look at the way we think towards ourselves or others or even God, ask the question according to whom, and then go, okay, now that I've seen all the unrealistic expectations that I think I'm meant to fulfill and I can put them to the side for a second and just still myself with God, let me find out what love actually is and what would it look like if I practiced that towards me and towards others? What would it actually look like if I added the virtue of patience to my children? What would it look like if I practiced the virtue of self-control? What would happen to my understanding and the establishment of faith in my heart if I started to practice some of the things that love says it is? The practice and the thoughts around love establish an understanding of the character of God in our hearts and therefore cause a transformation to change more and more of our life. Virtue and the pursuit of it is a gift to seeing the reality of Christ flourish in our lives. Can I encourage you, be people who pursue virtue with all that you have because it will establish the seed of faith in your heart and our understanding of who God is. I'll give you one, the band can jump up and I'll, I'll, I'll give you one more thing, suggestion that we could do to build virtue in our lives. 
Number one, have a look at the way you think. Number two, do something. I'll give you a personal example. One time I was downstairs and there'd been a, a couple of weeks of, there's just this habit of communication where we'd end up fighting or just bickering at each other. I know you, can, you don't relate to that, but I'm fallen and, and, and have faults. But anyway, we, I, just, no, I was downstairs and I, I was like, I was a bit cranky at myself and I was like, God, I, there's this pattern emerging and I don't like it. Like there's this pattern. I've, this has happened a few times and I'm not sure what to do. It was like a, oh, dirt moment, but it worked. He said, change the pattern. I was like, oh, I knew that, yeah. Change the pattern. He didn't say, yeah, I know Melinda's, you know, got this going on and it makes it difficult for you and, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure there's much I can do until she changes her mind. He, he didn't say that. He said to me, you ask me what you can do? Change the pattern. Sometimes we ask God something and wait for a complex answer. Sometimes he give you three words and wait for you to go and do that thing. It's amazing what that sort of virtue can build in your life. Or perhaps you're in a scenario where you're going to God and saying, God, I'm still broken by this thing and I can't let it go and I'm still hurt and I'm still angry and I don't know what to do and I've tried to let it go and I've tried to be fine with it, but I just can't let it go. And maybe God might want to say to you, how about you stop pretending you're fine? And find a space where you can express actually what you really feel. Stop lying to yourself. Stop pretending you're fine. Find a space where you can express what you need to and then you can actually move on. Or maybe like, God, I keep trying to do this thing and it's just not working. I've tried everything I know how to do and it's just not moving forward. And perhaps he might say to you, how about you stop trying to do it yourself? How about you ask somebody for help before you need it? How about you realize I didn't put you on earth to do things on your own? I'll put you together for a reason. Sometimes the simplicity of doing things a different way is what causes the greatest transformation of our understanding of God and of our lives. Jonah didn't like that. God said something simple to Jonah. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh, this evil city, and tell it if it doesn't, it's going to be destroyed because it's completely evil. And long story short, Jonah ran away and didn't want to do it. And then he eventually went to the city, preached it. The whole city repented and God forgave him and showed him mercy. And this is Jonah's response. He went, oh, no. This is why I ran away in the first place. Because I knew if I told them what was coming and they repented, you would forgive them. Why are you so nice? He didn't like it. God said, I want you to go and preach to this city. And he didn't like the mercy and the forgiveness that resulted in it. Why? He still had to develop that in his character. Sometimes you won't like the simple thing God asks you to do, but remember he knows the transformation it'll bring, not just to you, but to other people. When God asks you to do something according to the virtue of his moral excellence and moral character, he understands it will not only transform you, it will be a blessing to the people around you. So this morning I just wanted to encourage you when it comes to your faith, if you're wondering what's something I can do, to see this faith established in my heart? What can I do to see this seed of faith of Christ in me grow and influence the rest of my life? Can I encourage you? Perhaps look at the way you think about yourself, God, and others. Perhaps do something different. When you ask God for an answer and he tells you to do something simple, do that. Add virtue to your faith and just watch to see the transformation it brings.